0: hello folks this is JB Hickson with not by works ministries the podcast you're about to hear is a replay of a two-part message I gave at a conference in Illinois six years ago this is part one part two is also available in these messages I address the tendency on the part of some end times Bible teachers to sensationalize and set dates for the return of the Lord specifically in part one. I talk about the blood moons and Shemitah hysteria, as I like to call it. And in part two, I address the proper way to interpret current events in light of Scripture and point out several developments that could be setting the stage for the future fulfillment of prophecy. This two-part message came to my mind this morning during an interview I did on the Christian Underground News Network. That podcast is also available, entitled, Can We Set a Date for the Rapture? During this morning's interview, I referenced these past messages on the blood moons and Shemitah, so I decided to dig into our archives, pull them out, and repost them to our podcast channel. I hope you will take the time to listen to all three podcasts, the new interview from earlier today on Can We Set a Date for the Rapture, and the reposted two-part message from six years ago about the blood moons and Shemitah hysteria. All three are available on the Not By Work podcast channel wherever podcasts are found as well as on the Not By Works mobile app. And speaking of that, one final note, please don't forget to download the new Not By Works mobile app for your phone or mobile device. The Not By Works app is your one-stop location for all of the resources available from Not By Works Ministries, including our podcasts, videos, devotionals, and much more. It's your way to stay up to date with Not By Works Ministries, and you can also message us directly from the app. Check out the announcement banner on our website at notbyworks.org for more information on how to download the Not By Works app to your phone or mobile device. Now, enjoy part one of this message from back in 2015. Now, uh, I am really uh, motivated and excited about what we're going to be talking about tonight, but we have to make a deal. I only have 120 slides, so I don't know if I'll be, you know, I don't know if i have enough. Um, so, um, no, I, I have a lot of material, but you have to agree to listen fast if I talk fast. Is that a, is that a deal? How many of you can listen fast? Okay, good. Um, uh, actually, a lot of them are just uh, pictures of things that I'm going to get to uh, at the end. But uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention right here at the outset is, that often, especially in in my travels doing end-time stuff, it's really tough uh, to to, to please everybody. So what I have learned early on in ministry is don't try to please anybody, like Paul said in Galatians 1.10, preach the Word. And I'm not here to convince anybody of anything, I'm not here to win friends or or to, to make enemies either, I just want to preach the Word and what I want to encourage you to do is get in the Word of God, don't take my Word for anything I say, study the Word, Come to your own conclusions. We may in the end agree to disagree on some things. That's fine. As long as we're both in the Word, eventually it will resolve itself in unity. Um, uh, but I really am discouraged by the number of people who, who otherwise are, are biblical, God-fearing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who neglect the Word of God as the primary source material for our viewpoint on eschatology. And. Um, so I want to encourage us to do that. So uh, it's been—it's really been uh, enlightening for me to go back in and put together a comprehensive treatment. I've spoken about this in a variety of contexts uh, before, and uh, but never really gone into this level of detail. And I'm hoping that this will be a good, uh, you know, good definitive uh, study on the issue for, for many of you, and and maybe prompt some further uh, study uh, if not. Uh, when will the world end? Now, if you came tonight thinking that I had been given some special prophecy and a bowl of spaghetti and was going to be announcing a date, I'm here to tell you that you're going to be disappointed, Uh, but uh, actually, if you're here to to think that that I was probably going to uh, uh, sort of downplay any notion that the world might end in September, you may be disappointed too, because I'll tell you right here at the outset, I think the world might end in September the world as we know it. It very well might. And I'll tell you why at the end of this message. Um, but to start with, I thought we'd look at a, a good sort of practical passage that uh, I think relates to where we're at today. And that is uh, 2 Thessalonians 2. Now let me set the stage for you. In 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, this was Paul's uh, one of his earliest epistles. He wrote uh, uh, Galatians after his first missionary journey. And then he wrote First and Second Thessalonians on his second missionary journey. So it's about 51 A.D. What's that? My wireless is not on. Okay. On? Oh, is that because it has to be on on and not off? Is that better? Oh, that makes a huge difference. Should I start over? No, everybody says, no, please. Um, it's, and, and it was 51 A.D., and, uh, and the Apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he had written them in the first letter about the rapture. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4 is the definitive passage that really unveils this mystery of the rapture. The rapture, of course, uh, comes from the Greek word harpazo. It means to be caught up. It's literally a violent catching up to rescue someone from danger or harm. Paul talks about how we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And he talks about in 1 Thessalonians how that's going to happen before the great day of the Lord's wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 1 Thess 5.9. And he gave all that teaching. It was very clear. Nevertheless, between his first and second epistle, uh, the people that originally received his, his epistle began to look at the current events around them. Much like we're going to do tonight. Uh, and much like many people in the Christian world are doing you know, all over the place right now. And they began to see some signs that troubled them. Them. and they began to see some things that looked very similar to the types of things described in the Old Testament prophecies about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath, the overflowing scourge, all of these incredible judgments of God that will come someday on Israel prior to the second coming of the Lord. And so they began to be fearful that they were in The day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a prophetic term that uh, can mean, according to one of my mentors, John F. Walbert, it can mean anything from the rapture all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. But context, as always, has to determine meaning. More often than not, when the phrase day of the Lord is used, it's referring specifically to either A, the tribulation period, or B, the second coming in that very narrow event when Christ comes back to take the throne in the context here, they're using the phrase day of the Lord, although the New King James says day of Christ here, you notice uh, he says, now brethren concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, so what event is he talking about there? The rapture he's already talked about it in the first Thessalonians we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ it's literally the day of the Lord had come, so evidently someone had forged a letter and Paul's name, there was other people promoting this perspective that they were in the day of the Lord, look out, it's it's all about just about over. They were quite scared. So Paul addresses this in the second letter and he says, don't worry. He says, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, or literally and you can't tell from this particular slide, but the way it is in the literal, formal translation the phrase, you know, that day will not come uh, is in italics, That that's not actually in the original text is kind of smoothing it out Literally what Paul is saying is You know, you can't be in that day Unless two things have happened first One is the apostasia That's the Greek word here for falling away That English phrase falling away Is the translation of one word in Greek, apostasia Literally the Greek word apostasia means departure Words are always defined in context Not by a dictionary, right? Right? Uh, you've heard me say this before, but if I said, what does the word trunk mean? You would not be able to answer the question with a dictionary. You would not be able to answer the question until I use it in a sentence or use it in context. Same thing is true of apostasia and any other word in any other language, by the way. Uh, The King James originally translated this falling away as if to imply some type of spiritual falling away. Uh, I've written about this and we've talked about it elsewhere, that I think the best translation is departure, which is the normal meaning of the word. And um, especially since in context he's talking about the departure of Christians to meet the Lord in the air. He's talking about you know the second coming later on. He's talking about a lot of moving from point A to point B. But that's not even the the main point that I want to draw out here. The point is, he says, you can't be in the day until two things happen first. The departure, which I think is the rapture. And then he also says the revelation of the man of sin. The unveiling of the Antichrist. So here's Paul's point. Stop looking at the, the current events around you and look at the promise of the Word of God. Whatever that means, and again, I'm not going to turn this into a debate over the meaning of apostasia. That's beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. The point's the same either way. Paul says there are some things that must happen before the day of the Lord can be here. And if those things haven't happened, you're not in the day of the Lord, no matter how bad it looks. Okay? Now, what's the application for us today? Well, there are a lot of people uh, that are suggesting that certain cosmic signs and special messages given to special end times prophets are suggesting that we are in the end times already. And I'm going to address that as we work through the material tonight. Now, uh, we talked about in the past, uh, you know, going way back, uh, that three there are three basic approaches to studying Bible prophecy. Uh, Essentially there's two categories. There's those that believe everything happened in the past. That's the preterists. They think that there is no end times prophecy. Their their, their systematic theology books only have nine chapters. They don't have an eschatology because there is no future end times. Christ is going to come back, the good go to heaven, the bad go to hell, and it's all over. That's what's called replacement theology. Every prophecy was fulfilled by 70 AD. And yes, for those of you that have studied this, I understand there's degrees of that. There's not everyone's a hardcore preterist. But the bottom line is it's all fulfilled in the past, right? But then the other category is those who think no, I think there's some prophecies in Scripture that are going to be fulfilled in the future. But within that camp, there's two approaches. The first is called the historicist view. These are what are commonly we call date-setters. These are the people who we would agree with in their overall scheme. We understand there's a future for national Israel. We understand that there's a distinction between the rapture and the second coming, we may disagree on when the rapture happens relative to the second coming, but we all agree in a two-phase coming of Christ, once for the church, once for Israel to establish His earthly kingdom, uh, and we're all in agreement on most of that, that information, but what the historicists do is they look at current events and everything that happens, they say, this is the fulfillment of this prophecy, this is the fulfillment of this prophecy, this is the fulfillment of this prophecy. So the reason I draw a circle around that, and that's a rudimentary timeline here on on the bottom is that historicists think we're living inside the bubble of fulfillment today. Alright? The third category is the view that I hold and that's the futurist view. Then the futurist perspective is this. The next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward is what? The rapture. Nothing has to happen before the rapture. That's called the doctrine of imminency. We have a DVD on the doctrine of imminency back there if you've never studied that. Um, the, the imminency of the rapture teaches that the rapture could happen at any moment. That's what imminent means. And uh, And so we believe that at some point... The rapture is going to happen, and then after the rapture, that ushers us into the end times plan of God's plan of the ages. Later on tonight, I'm going to diagram out for you the distinction between the present church age, which is called the last days in Scripture, and the end times. They're two different things. The end times start with the rapture and then includes everything after that. The last days are the present age in which we live. So you can tell there's some, you know, common ground here between futurists and historicists. We all love the Lord. In fact, you know, by the way, so do preterists. We're not suggesting they're not saved or they're somehow heretics or whatever. We just have an honest disagreement about Bible prophecy. Okay. Um, But among those who believe in a future for national Israel and believe in a literal rapture and a literal second coming and a literal seal trumpet, Judgments, Battle of Armageddon, Gog and Magog, 144,000 Witnesses, The Two Witnesses, Abomination of Desolation, Millennium, all of those end times events. Among those who believe in all that, the historicists say, this is that. Every time something happens they cite a reference, usually out of context in my opinion, and say we're being fulfilled. We believe, no, it could be the setting of the stage but it's not the actual fulfillment. Alright, so let's review some of the chatter in the world of Bible prophecy enthusiasts, okay? Uh, These are some of the things that we're hearing, and I'm not going to necessarily comment on these for now, but I want to sort of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about tonight. Well, obviously, September has a lot of people's attention because it's the end of the Jewish Shemitah year on September 13th. There's been talk of an asteroid hitting the earth on September 24th. Uh, you've got the blood moon Tetrad on September 28th. Feast of Tabernacles also on September 28th. You've got large-scale military exercises, specifically jade helm. We're going to talk more about that. You've got uh, CERN attempting to replicate a Big Bang and, quote, open the abyss using the most powerful cycle of the Large Hadron Collider to date. Uh, That's a pretty significant thing, in my opinion. Uh, You've got the Pope meeting with President Obama um, at the White House on September 23rd. Then he's going to address a joint session of Congress on September 24th. And then UN on the 25th, I think, through the 27th, uh, and he's going to address essentially the 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 next phase of the new world order agenda we had agenda 21 now they're calling this agenda 2030 it's uh, also called the post 2015 sustainable development agenda and the pope's going to address the UN there in new york city you've got the luciferian elite stockpiling food weapons and ammunition in underground bunkers i mean that's that's a known fact i'm um, going to show you some pictures of that a little bit later you got the world council of churches sponsoring peace for palestine week Starting September. I am so glad for that because I was waiting for the World Council churches to step in and solve this centuries old problem. Aren't you glad that after September 20th, there will be no more tension between the Arabs and the Jews in the Middle East? Um, So all kinds of events and things converging and happening. and, And listen, it's got my attention. I don't mean to suggest for a second that, uh, you know, that, that these types of things aren't significant. The difference is what do they mean? Are they the fulfillment of prophecy or are they a potential setting of the stage? So I'm kind of giving you a glimpse at where we're going with this, uh, but I hope you'll stay with me. Now, uh, let's take a closer look at the mystery of the Shemitah. Uh, how many of you have read Jonathan Khan's latest book? Okay, just for my notes, okay? How many of you are familiar with it or have heard it? Surely you have. If you're interested in Bible prophecy, you can't help but hear about it. Uh, I'm going to actually look at the Bible and talk all the way through what this word means and what this term means. And it might interest you to know this is the Hebrew word Shemitah. I got it from my uh, Logos Bible software. And remember in Hebrew you read from right to left. So that's a, a sheen, a maim a tov and a hate, uh, with the vowel pointers there, Shemitah, that's an A, or the vocalization of an A. And we transliterate it, uh, as you see on the screen there, Shemitah, and in English we would use an uh, S-H, E-M-I-T-A-H. That's the way uh, Khan titles it. Now it's interesting to me he didn't use two T's, because the normal transliteration in this particular construction would be two T's. But anyway, Shemitah, the Hebrew word means release. Or remission of debt. And it might interest you to know that it's only used five times in the entire Old Testament. And, you know, three of them, uh, actually four of them, are in Deuteronomy chapter 15. So let's take a look at this passage. If you're going to, you know, understand what the Shemitah is, it's kind of a good idea to start with the Bible, right? Um, you know, it seems like when a lot of times when these books come along, we're so fascinated by them and and we, we want to read them, and they're interesting, and they have especially if you're interested in Bible prophecy as we are. But let's not forget that the the, the Bible study starts with the Bible. Okay, yeah. Bible study starts with the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. See that word release? That's the word shmita. The Hebrew word, Shemitah. A release of debt. And this is the form of the Shemitah, the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. Shemitah. Uh, he shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Shemitah. Okay? Um So that's the that's the the context for the word. It goes on to talk about if you and you can read this for yourself. For the sake of time, we won't take the time to exegete the entire passage, but it goes on to talk about if you follow this, you will be blessed. You know? It has nothing to do, it never mentions the word judgment, it never spells out any judgment, it never even implies judgment. It just says if you do this, you're going to be blessed. You know, this is God's plan of blessing, right? So, uh, the book by Jonathan Kahn actually expounds upon uh, a premise that was contained in his first book, The Harbinger, and there was a chapter by the same name. Uh, and I read The Harbinger, wrote a review of it a few, a couple, three years ago, four years ago. And um, one of the chapters is called The Mystery of the Shemitah. Um, but before we examine his claims and kind of what he does with this biblical concept of the Shemitah, let's go ahead and and, and say what the Shemitah is according to uh, the Bible. So the Shemitah was, as we just read, an obligation given specifically and exclusively to the nation of Israel. Um, In the Law of Moses, God required that Jews cease from their work on the seventh day of each week, and then in addition to the Sabbath day, the Lord gave Israel the instruction to cease every seventh year as a Sabbath as well, the Sabbath year. And during the Sabbath year, the Israelites were to allow the land to rest from planting and harvesting and to allow whatever came up on its own to be picked up by the poor among them. So a lot of times you'll hear discussions of Leviticus 25 and Exodus 23... In the context of the Shemitah, those passages actually don't talk about the Shemitah, but it is contextually relevant because that's when it's talking about that Sabbath year, that seventh year. But it's only from Deuteronomy 15 that we get the terms of the Shemitah, the release of the debts. By the way, I, I meant to mention at the outset that all of these slides are available uh, already, ready for you to download at uh, uh, at our website here at uh, Not By Works. If I can get over here to it. If you go to notbyworks.org, click on free resources, click on study notes, click on conference notes. Uh, And the very first one listed right there is When Will the World End, Blunt Moons, and Shemitah Hysteria. So every one of these 120 slides is there. I see people copying things down. You're welcome to take notes. I encourage it. But if you want to print these out at home, they're in color. You can print them out on your own printer. Uh, You can rest assured you'll get everything uh, uh, that's here. Uh, So anyway, back to our uh, slides here. Uh, Just as God had provided a double portion of manna on the sixth day of each week while the Israelites were in the wilderness to prepare them for the seventh, the Lord actually tripled the harvest in the sixth year uh, to carry them through the harvest for the first year of the new seven year cycle. Uh, And then as we read in Deuteronomy 15 that on the last day of the Sabbath year, lenders were required to forgive or release Shemitah borrowers from the obligation of repaying their debts. And over time, that last day of the Sabbath year and the year itself became known as the Shemitah year. So you'll hear me talk about the Shemitah year. That's where that concept comes from. Uh, It had agrarian as well as economic implications um, obviously, all of the Lord's Sabbath laws had agrarian implications. God knows how the land works. But as we just read, it had economic implications as well. You might think that you know the Shemitah system would wreck an economy and, and hurt the lenders who lost their investment, right? If all of a sudden you've got everybody who had lent money being told, hey, forgive the debt, release the debt, Shemitah. Wow, could you imagine what that would do to the economic system? But... God knows best, as is always the case. And uh, it brought blessing. And that was the whole point of the Shemitah. If you trust me, Yahweh, children of Israel, just as you frequently didn't do throughout the wilderness wanderings and and, and all these other time periods, I will bless you. Now, uh, there's no biblical support that I can find anywhere in the text anyway for the idea that God would ever require any other nation to observe the Shemitah year any more than he would any other Jewish law or custom or that he would impose some type of Shemitah judgment according to a seven year cycle on any nation, including the nation of Israel. Uh, There's really no mystery pertaining to the Shemitah in Scripture. And there never has been. It's all spelled out. We just read a portion portion of it. The exact requirements for keeping the Sabbath year were very explicitly revealed by God uh, uh, to and through Moses uh, right there in in the Pentateuch. Um, So... um, Anyway, I'll say more about that in a moment when we look at some of uh, the the text from the the book, The Mystery of the Shemitah. Uh, The scriptures never give any indication that there was some sort of underlying mystery or principle that was in operation. It was all very straightforward and clear. It was for Israel, like all other Sabbath regulations. Now, let's take a look at what Kahn does with this teaching about the Shemitah. Uh, according to Khan, all of these are going to be according to Khan, God has revealed a special mystery interpretation related to the Shemitah laws of the Old Testament directly and mystically to Him. That's His words. That's his words. I've heard him speak many times uh, in, in uh, podcasts and, and a couple times live uh, streaming. Uh, here's one quote. Uh, when he was on the Jim Baker show, uh, he said, this is, w- this is what came and the Lord did it and he's motioning to heaven. And he says they, they rapidly came just as they did with the harbinger. These revelations just kept coming and coming and coming. And uh, so he, he's positioned himself as, quote, a revealer of mysteries. Uh, many of which he claims no one else has ever seen before. Uh, In fact, this you might even say is his trademark. He's typically introduced when he speaks on the radio and on TV shows as a quote, end times prophet. Uh, One of my colleagues that I've worked with uh, before, uh, in terms of speaking at the same conferences and sharing a platform, he he called uh, him the greatest end times prophet of our day. That's what he called him. Um, it's also interesting uh, to note the subtitle of the book. The 3,000-year-old mystery that holds the secret of America's future, the world's future, and your future. Okay? So remember what we read. Remember we said the biblical concept of the Shemitah was... Um, So, um, here's his perspective. Now, let's kind of see where he goes with this and where he takes it. According to Khan, God has visited warnings and or judgment against the United States according to a seven-year cycle dating back many uh, decades. But as I've already said, there's no such thing in the Bible as a Shemitah judgment. This is just sort of an observation that he makes. Based on an observed pattern, he claims that America is due to receive this Shemitah judgment in September. Uh, He frequently calls America, quote, the Israelites. Israel of the new world and the second uh, Israel this is a quote from the mystery of the Shemitah he says quote most would find it surprising to learn that America was consciously intentionally and specifically founded and formed after the pattern of ancient Israel uh, it's I couldn't find that anywhere its founders saw it as a new Israel the Israel of the new world their exodus was from Europe like the Hebrews was from Egypt. The new world was their new promised land. Um, and he goes on to say in a different page there's no na- nation in the world so deeply linked to ancient Israel as America. There is therefore no stage or platform on earth so well suited for the manifesting of the mystery of the Shemitah as America. Uh, He also says George Washington dedicated the United States to God's uh, purposes and therefore the Shemitah cycle applies to us. So he goes back to the founding of our country. Again, we're the new Israel. Therefore, these special uh, blessing promises uh, that he implies in the reverse, that they're also judgment promises, apply to us. Well, let's take a look at that for a moment. George Washington. Uh, Servant of God, modern day Moses, well, uh, George Washington's prayer in St. Paul's Chapel was a Masonic procession that has been reenacted for years by Freemasons in New York City. Uh, I've done a fair amount of research in my New World Order studies about Freemasonry, even visited a Freemason temple. Um, and so I can kind of picture this. Washington, I don't know if very many people know this, but he was sworn in on a Masonic Bible. Uh, the one who administered the oath of office was a grand master of Freemasonry. One of the most famous portraits of Washington depicts him in full Masonic regalia. He was appointed as the charter master of the Alexandria Lodge Number 22 in Virginia. He was buried... Uh, with a masonic ceremony in full pomp and, and splendor uh, so, the God of the Founding Fathers was clearly not the God of the Bible, whether or not they occasionally quoted the Bible or made reference to the Creator. And i only point this out because you know I, I've had the opportunity to teach at the graduate level church history, and I recommend highly an excellent DVD series called Hidden Faith of Our Founding Fathers. It's an excellent resource that sort of tells the rest of the story that uh, guys like David Barton don't tell. And I'm not criticizing David Barton, I just think he doesn't give the whole story. He cherry picks a few quotes and sort of implies that our founding fathers were all, uh, you know, God fearing, born again believers who were here to do the work of God, and that's simply not the case. Now, the Plymouth Rock group, absolutely, they were devout believers seeking freedom of religious freedom, but the later groups, many of the founding fathers, they were members of satanic secret societies. Uh, So I'm not sure I buy that premise. Even if it were true, I wouldn't buy the premise that America is the new Israel. But I'm not sure you can even really make that claim historically. Um, But according to Kahn, here's the crux of the matter. If you chart out the seven-year Shemitah cycles throughout history and then focus in on the last hundred years in the United States, something catastrophic seems to happen around the time of each Shemitah year. And it's uncanny when you look at it. This is his chart, one of his charts. This one goes back to 1966. So you've got these different financial crises. This is sort of tracing the stock market. And by the way, yes, we'll get to what happened Friday and today in the stock market. I'm going to address that a little bit later. But this is kind of the approach. You just think about this this chart, okay? So let me sort of replicate how he comes to his conclusions without being specific, and just sort of philosophically talk about the concept. So this is going to represent Kahn's calculations. If we just say Shemitah year one, two, three, let's assume they're seven years apart, and let's just kind of follow his line of thinking. Well, the first thing he has to do is, as with any cycle. Is pick a starting date, right? So he's got to start with the, the beginning. And there's a huge question about when that beginning is. Um, the, the Hebrew calendar among scholars is highly disputed. Um, there, there's a well-known discrepancy between the rabbinical calendar and the Christian reckoning. And, and this is based upon the fact that we have about 400 years of lost data. There's no biblical records. Uh, and so there are many scholarly works that examine this. If you've studied uh, Hebrew or church history uh, or any, any type of you know formal training in Christian history, you'll be aware of this. One of the greatest new works on the issue is called the Jewish History and Conflict. Any Jewish scholar or Christian scholar would know this, and, and he knows it. Uh, in fact, uh, but, but I'll get to that in a second, but this uncertainty uh, affects many aspects of the Jewish calendar, such as the precise timing of the Sabbath years, the Jubilee years, the Shemitah years. According to the vast majority of scholars, it is virtually impossible to know for certain if the Shemitah years are being reckoned accurately. Now, this is not problematic at all for those of us who understand that the world at large and the church in particular are not functioning according to the Mosaic calendar. So that's not not a problem. We understand the significance of all of the Jewish festivals and feasts and the calendars. We understand the significance of it. We understand the future uh, Jewish kingdom. We understand all that. But in terms of a regulating principle for the world as we know it today, especially America, it it really is not problematic at all that there's a highly disputed uh, date in terms of when do you start it, where do you reckon it from. But... For the prophetic date-setters, this does present a major problem because where do you start? Now, Kahn skims over this controversy addressing it only rarely and, and, and dismissively, as I've read him, um, in his interviews. So, in other words, he has to acknowledge it to be taken seriously by anybody in the academic world, but he basically picks a starting point, you know, either A or B because there's two, two perspectives, two views, and then just kind of runs with it. So, I just wanted to point out that, you know, the... To begin with, it's highly debatable when it starts. Okay? But let's assume that the starting point is correct. What does he do next? He then counts out and follows the Shemitah cycle every seven years, and he looks for events that happen in or around those Shemitah years. Um, basically, uh, as he tries to find significant, you might say, um, catastrophic or cataclysmic you know, world changing type events or in the case of America's judgment. Remember he says the Shemitah God revealed to him the Shemitah is a is a special judgment for America. Then he's looking for things uniquely related to American history so financial things wars, things like 9-11 um, and so forth uh, and so but what he does uh, by his own uh, admission, admission is he allows 18 months on either side of the Shemitah year to to identify some major event. I've heard him say that just recently. In fact, I could not find this quote. I've spent about 30 hours this past week going through all this stuff. I wish I could have found it. But I heard him just recently basically hedge his bets up to a year you know, beyond the, the 18 months. He's basically saying it, could, it may not happen here, it may not happen here, but it's going to be close. But anyway, he frequently talks about 18 months on either side. Now, there is a philosophical concept that you may not have heard of called historical recurrence uh, some you know, atheistic philosophers call it the doctrine of eternal recurrence but it's basically the idea that history really does repeat itself and that if you come up with enough um, of, a, of a window and a, and a time period and sort of a pattern, you'll be able to find something that you can identify so he concludes essentially that similarity equals identity Uh, this is a logical fallacy actually Uh, it's it's also an exegetical one similarity equals uh, identity you see it again and again when something in the Bible is mentioned and something similar to that happens in modern day and current events, then it's a this is that. It's what I mentioned earlier about the historicist view. So we see something described in Isaiah nine ten that sounds kind of like the Twin Towers and 9-11, and there's some similarities there, sometimes uncanny similarities. And so we say, oh, this is a secret code. This is the fulfillment of that. The attacks on 9-11 were predicted by the prophet Isaiah 800 years before Christ. Similarity. Equals identity, but that's a logical fallacy, and I can illustrate it uh, Borrowing this analogy from my friend uh, Tom McMahon at the Berean call uh, this way A hundred dollar bill in monopoly money is very similar to a hundred dollar bill. They're both paper They both have a 100 on it. They're both called money But it would be quite embarrassing indeed to show up to pay for something with a $100 monopoly bill, right? So a $100 monopoly bill, though it's similar, does not equal a $100 bill. Mark Twain put it this way, a favorite theory of mine to wit that no occurrence is sole and solitary, but it is merely a repetition of a thing which has happened before and perhaps often. Uh, the, the historical recurrence so uh, so here's, here's my illustration let's say I wanted to identify some historical recurrence so I pick a starting point and then I sort of give myself a window of time surrounding that starting point and then I begin to just observe just simple observance I want to observe any major events that are similar in scope falling within a given recurrence window and, and it's really not that hard it's really not that hard, okay? So uh, so I think the Shemitah, what we can conclude is that it is a principle for Israel of blessing that God wanted to, to show his faithfulness and to show the benefits of trusting him. It had economic and agrarian um, implications. Nowhere in the text does it even discuss what happens if they don't follow it, except that they won't be blessed. Certainly that never implies warning or judgment. And there's nothing in the biblical text that would seem to indicate that it was some universal principle, blessing or otherwise, for the whole world. Okay. Uh, now let's take a closer look at the issue of the blood moons because these are often uh, given in tandem. In fact, uh, when uh, Khan. Was uh, spoke at Mark Blitz's church, uh, World Net Daily, uh, did a big article about it, and they called it, When Blood Moons Meets the Shemitah. You know, so they're very commonly put together, and they have some of the similar things. Uh, so here's Mark Blitz. Uh, he's really the one who first popularized the pro- prophetic implications of the blood moon, and then John Hagee, who has a much bigger platform, uh, really popularized it with his best-selling book on, on the subject. But it suffers, as we're going to see, from the same biblical flaws uh, that Kahn's Shemitah theory does. Uh, So again, what is a a blood moon? A full lunar eclipse is sometimes referred to as a blood moon, because when the shadow of the earth completely blocks the sun's direct rays, the moon takes on a reddish or red-orange color for the same reason that sunsets are frequently this color. Um, A blood moon tetrad is when there are four consecutive full lunar eclipses with no other intervening eclipses. And interestingly, again, I have no problem with observing some pretty interesting things. Where I begin to get a little uncomfortable is when we say this is that. That God has revealed something special, supernatural, and mystically to me and this is what's going to happen between this date and between this date. But it is interesting, by the way, as they have in the past, that all four lunar eclipses fall on Jewish feast days in the spring and fall of 2014 and 2015. Now, as we did with the Shemitah, let's look at the alleged biblical support for this. The key passages are Joel 2, Matthew 24, and Revelation 8. Uh, We'll look at these in a second, but in the context, these passages describe supernatural, that's very important, supernatural cosmic disturbances in conjunction with the second coming of Christ not naturally recurring solar and lunar cycles. Now, Joel 2. Uh, I love this passage. It's, it's very significant for the end times. Peter quotes it. Uh, I, I love Joel's prophecy just in general. Um, but here, uh, we could pick it up in 28, but in verse 30 he says, "...I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood." before the coming of the great and awesome day of the lord okay these are cosmic signs jesus Quotes the same thing in his famous Olivet discourse. He says immediately after the tribulation of those days. So, when are these cosmic signs going to happen? After the tribulation. Jesus has just outlined in Matthew twenty-four, four to fourteen, the events of the of the tribulation period. He even quotes Daniel by name, so there can be no mistaking that he's talking about the seventieth week of Daniel. If you look at the correspondence between Matthew twenty-four, four to four, 4 to really the end of the chapter, but, but specifically four to fourteen, and the sealed trumpet and bold judgments in Revelation. 6 to 18, you see unbelievable parallels. They're clearly talking about the same time frame. Um, and he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Uh, and then in Revelation chapter 6, in conjunction with the sealed judgment, I looked and behold the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. Now, what we see when we look at the biblical text and read it in its context is that anytime God is doing something directly intervening in the affairs of man, um, you know, that's, that's the broadest sense of the day of the Lord. I mean, God is always actively involved in the, in the affairs of mankind. God is sovereign. He's, he knows what He's doing. He's superintending over the affairs of mankind. But let's face it, you know, God in this present age doesn't routinely, in a global sense, come down and, you know, part the Red Sea or have a, a global flood or the sun standing still for a day or these other major uh, cosmic events. And when you look through uh, history and biblical history, you see times when God does this. And it's always key moments in human history. Like the plagues. These are supernatural things. Um, And then, of course, you could go to the book of Revelation and you could see all of the cataclysmic type events that are described there. Water turning to blood. uh, So much of the sea life destroyed. Those types of, of things. And although these events, these cosmic signs is what we call them in the study of Bible prophecy. Cosmic signs involve God using nature. None of them were or will be merely natural, predictable events. The end times cosmic signs will be supernatural even though they do involve nature. And think about it this way. If God's signs were purely natural and completely predictable... Then they would never be recognized as coming directly from the hand of God. That's what makes them signs, by the way. Uh, so, blood moons are natural. Um, the, pleasant, the present blood moon tetrad is a completely natural and predictable event. Matter of fact, NASA has calculated the precise location and exact timing to the second of every lunar and solar eclipse for thousands of years in the past and thousands of years in the future. So to observe the uniqueness, and it's, it is uh, not unprecedented, but somewhat unique in the cycle of lunar and solar eclipses, that these would fall on these significant Jewish feast days is, is unique, it's, it's worth noting, it might catch our attention, but to draw from that some type of prophetic significance that goes way beyond the scope of clear biblical prophecy, I think uh, crosses the line. See, the thing is, there's enough clear teaching on Bible prophecy in the scripture, we don't need to get any from extra-biblical revelation. We can just let the Bible speak. Uh, Not only that, but since Jesus is the creator, uh, that means he's the one who established this precise timetable and geometry of the orbits of the earth, moon, and sun. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 tell us he's the creator. So how is it that he was unable to figure out the mystery of the Shemitah and its convergence with the blood moon tetrad long before Khan and uh, Blitz did? Jesus said, "But of that day and hour, no one knows—not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father." So, when will the world as we know it end? All right, this is the fun part. I'm sure some of you probably who are big fans of the, of Khan of and Blitz are, you know, not too happy with me right now because I criticize them. I'm not personally attacking them at all. They're brothers in the Lord. I. I'm sure they're going to be in heaven with us. I'm not calling them heretics. I just disagree with the handling of the Word of God. And I would encourage everyone not to take my word for it. Read what the Bible says about the Shemitah and see if you can come uh, to the, a different conclusion. Uh, but, so whether I whether you're cheering me by like my one-man amen corner over here, or... Uh, Not too happy with me right now Let's move on because I think everybody Will be intrigued by what we have to say the rest of our time together And let me just introduce it then we'll take a break And then we'll come back afterwards And talk about when the world uh, will end Hopefully it won't end while we're on our break Um, So here's a chart of the end times Here's a chart of the end times Here we are right now in the church age Okay Uh, The church age, I didn't get into this. Uh, It was in my notes, but I'm I'm trying to go very fast here so we can have time for questions. But the church age actually is called a mystery in the Bible. A mystery in Scripture uh, is something that was previously unrevealed, but is now being revealed by God. And he does it through the apostles and prophets and through his special revelation of the Word of God. Um, And so the church, Paul tells us, was a mystery. That is, it was never talked about in the Old Testament. You will search the Old Testament in vain for any reference to the church. Now, the church, the Old Testament prophets allowed for a church age. If you look at Daniel 9, 24-27, for example, that famous 490-year prophecy clearly has a gap of time right there in the text between the 483rd year and the start of the 484th year, between the 69th week and the 70th week. It's right there in the text because he says, from the, the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, has come shall be 483 years then after that the Messiah will be cut off that's the crucifixion the city will be destroyed. That's the 70 AD event. And then he says, then after that, the Antichrist is going to come and sign a peace treaty. So you've got clearly some things happening between the 69th and 70th week. The text in Daniel doesn't tell us when the Antichrist is going to sign the peace treaty. It just says that's what's going to kick off the final seven years. Then you come to the New Testament and Paul comes along and under the inspiration of the Spirit reveals that this inter-advent age is what's called the church age. So he puts it right Right into that gap that the Old Testament prophets allowed for. So the New Testament teaching about the church is in no ways inconsistent with the Old Testament prophecies. God's Word cannot contradict itself. But the New Testament teaching doesn't change the meaning of Old Testament prophecies either. If it did, then God would be made out to be a liar. The original recipients of His text in the Old Testament would have been unfair because they don't have all the information. New Testament revelation cannot change the meaning of Old Testament revelation. What it can do is give more information, more details. That's what a mystery is, and that's where we're living now. But the end times, as I said, uh, begin with the rapture and take us all the way through the eternal state to the new heavens and the new earth. So a lot of things happen in the end times. Uh, we see obviously the the rapture. We see the covenant being made in Daniel nine twenty seven. We see the reign of the Antichrist who is indwelt by Satan uh, and his breaking the treaty at the midpoint. uh, The uh, abomination of desolation, that's called. Jesus refers to that. uh, Where he demands that the world worship him. We see an intense period of persecution for the nation of Israel during this period of time that is variously referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble or Daniel's 70th week or uh, the day of the Lord's wrath. By the way, Daniel's prophecy very clearly says and. Ninety years. I'm extrapolating that from the Hebrew terms seventy sevens, which is four hundred ninety. Uh, but Daniel's prophecy clearly says are decreed for my people and my holy city. So the four hundred ninety year plan is for Israel. Okay. Um, uh, now, obviously, God's plan for Israel all along is is global in scope. He wanted Israel to be the nation that crossed the Jordan, entered the Promised Land of Canaan, and, and won the whole world over to Yahweh. And and they, of course, didn't do it. He wants the church to do that today. That's why we're told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Uh, We may or may not reach every unreached people group before the rapture. We certainly should try. That's our, our mission. But we do know for a fact, according to Scripture, like, Daniel, like uh, Matthew 24, I think it's 13, uh, that prior to the coming of Christ to establish the kingdom on earth, and in conjunction with his coming, everyone on planet earth will know about the Lord. And it'll be through Israel. Like Paul said, like Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. I think that's John 4. So. Um, so clearly that was Israel's plan all along. But this, during this tribulation period, you've got Israel taking center stage once again. Uh, everything centers around Israel. The temple's rebuilt. The Antichrist takes the throne. You've got the abomination of desolation. Uh, you've got um, the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Is it any accident that God's first missionaries that, that set out on planet earth after all the Christians are gone? I mean, think about that moment. In the twinkling of an eye, every single believer born-again believer is gone. I mean, you think it's bad now. Imagine how it would be after the rapture. And so in order to continue the evangelistic enterprise, God has to supernaturally mark out and set aside some missionaries. And who does He pick? 12,000 from each of 12 tribes of Israel. And they begin to spread the gospel. Now their target audience isn't just Jews. there are people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language according to Revelation 7. Uh, And uh, Jesus said, speaking about that tribulation period in Matthew 24, 13, I think it's 13 or 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the uttermost parts of the world and then the end will come. What's the end? The end of the age. Christ comes and ushers in the the messianic uh, kingdom. So uh, it's all Jewish in nature, but this is the... End times, but again, we live right here in the church age. So the best we can say as we look at all of these incredible things happening uh, is that the stage is being set for the end times. Is the stage being set? And I'm going to point out some things, many of them you probably are well aware of. Some of them maybe you have not thought about with some documentation and some commentary that I'm going to give you about what I believe to be the setting of the stage. And uh, I think it's no accident that in the lead up to our uh, Bible study tonight we see the stock market just tanking Friday and then again today. Uh, and who knows what, what that's going to mean. Is it just a correction? Is it something more significant than that? We don't know. So when we come back from the break in a moment, we're going to take a look at the world and we're going to begin to look at some of the current events that, never mind what you think about the blood moons and the Shemitah. I mean, if you make enough predictions, you know, you're going to be right eventually. So uh, I'm going to be on record as saying the world might end in September. And if so, woohoo for you know Jonathan Cahn, good, good for him. He's going to probably sell some more books, you know. And I'm not questioning his motives at all. He believes what he's he believes what he's writing. As far as I know, I've heard him. He is he is, seems to be passionate, just as I'm passionate about his view. I'm not. I think some end times date setters are charlatans. I have no reason to think he's one of them. Nothing. Nothing I've seen. He may be, um, but I've I've not seen anything that indicates. So I think he's genuine and sincere. He loves Jesus. I just disagree with him. And I don't think his calculations, his whole approach to the biblical text are accurate. But whatever you think about that, something's happening. Whether that means something's going to happen soon... Who knows? Even so, come Lord Jesus. It would be alright with me if it was soon. Uh, but we need to be prepared because we may be here for a while longer before the rapture. And um, last thing I'll say before the break is... is you know, sometimes we that believe in the rapture get accused by those who don't of, of teaching that, you know, oh, we, we're we never going to have to suffer. We're never going to have to worry about anything. That, you know, we, we, we're fatalists. We just know that we're going to be rescued before it gets bad. And that kind of thinking, not only is it is it a straw man, because I don't know of any scholarly people that believe and teach about the rapture that hold that view. But secondly, it's it's self-evident that it's not true. We are passionate about, you know, spreading the gospel the urgency of the gospel, recognizing we have a job to do, just because we happen to believe the Bible teaches we will be rescued before the great and terrible day of the Lord, doesn't mean that we're not aware that it could get pretty bad before then. Not only that, but those of us in Western American evangelical culture who take the approach that... Uh, well, I you know I uh, I don't think it'll you know I think the Lord's going to rapture us before it gets too bad. You ever heard that phrase? I, I've said it before, before I started catching myself. When we say that statement that oh I think the Lord's going to rapture us before it gets too bad, we are completely disregarding the fact. That for 2,000 years of church history, it's been that bad for a lot of people in a lot of parts of the globe. And it's that bad right now for people in other parts of the Middle East and places where they're being beheaded for the cause of Christ. They're being tortured and persecuted. So we are naive if we don't think that might not happen to us before the rapture. So we need to be ready for that. And so if for no other reason than being prepared, we do need to look around us and see what's coming. Not because we're hoping to divine some type of supernatural sign that's going to give us a date, but so that we can be prepared. So that we can be prepared. So uh, let's take a break.